0: Welcome to a special broadcast of the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. The Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan public forum dedicated to airing diverse views on important topics of national interest. Today, Climate One at the Commonwealth Club presents a program from the Copenhagen Climate Conference. The first part of this program is a discussion with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Governor of California, and Wang Ming, founder and CEO of Himeen Solar. This program was recorded earlier today. The moderator is Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One.
1: We are here today from the United Nations climate negotiations in Copenhagen, where more than 100 world leaders are gathered to negotiate a global climate agreement. This program is presented with the Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Program, a non-profit group based in Vienna. And we're broadcasting from a studio at Hub Culture in Copenhagen. First, we'll have two segments today. First, we welcome California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and Huang Ming, founder and CEO of Himing Solar, one of China's largest renewable energy companies. Later, to discuss the science and finance of climate change, we'll be joined by Rajendra Pachari, Chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and Kyle Koch wesser Vice Chairman of Deutsche Bank. Please join me in welcoming Governor Schwarzenegger and Huang Ming. Welcome to Climate One,
2: Governor. Well, thank you. It's nice to talk to you again. Good to see you in Europe instead of California. That's right. Uh, well, I like it actually here because uh, I'm uh, here. I'm not the only one with an accent. It's <laughs> uh, good. Absolutely. It's nice to be here. Um, you have an accent too. Yeah. 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 Chinese <laughs> accent. Yeah. He's Chinese pretending. Accent. Oh, I'm not. I have, I have an accent. I here, here I have an accent. You have an accent, exactly.
1: <laughs> California accent. Um, There's a lot of countries here in Copenhagen that have national policies uh, on energy and climate. China certainly does, the UK has their low carbon transition plan. The United States does not really have a national energy and climate policy. President Obama comes here in two days with proposed cuts that are lower, uh, not as aggressive as scientists would like and other countries have proposed. Can the US really be a leader here without a national policy and with such modest proposals that they're bringing?
2: Well, first of all, I think that uh, it is embarrassing that the United States does not have a policy. And uh, I think it's also embarrassing that the United States not only has no policy, but that our policy fluctuates and changes all the time. I remember that during uh, the 70s, we started going on the right track. Um, in the late 70s under President Carter, where they talked about renewable energy and solar and uh, geothermal and uh, uh, all the different things, give tax incentives to get people in that direction. And In the 80s, when the oil prices came down, all of a sudden that whole thing was thrown out and abandoned, and we had a different policy. So you can't do that. The Europeans were very smart. That in the 70s, they set themselves on a course for renewable energy and changing their policies. And now this is why most of the European countries now have 20% of renewables and uh, having a lot of wind and solar and others at and geothermal. And so. so there's a lot of great things that have happened in the last 20 years in Europe, but not really in the United States. If you think about that, we have 2.8% of renewables in the United States. I mean, that is pitiful. and um, you know, And we have an outdated grid system. Uh, that delivers uh, you know, power around the, from one state to the next and throughout the country. And of course, the Obama administration now wants to change all that. Uh, but you know, it's, it, it, it will take a lot of effort and to, to figure out a way so that we have an energy policy that stays for decades to come. Because when you're in this business, you've got to think uh, 20, 30, 40 years ahead, not just what, what are you going to do the next five years. And that's what we have to do in the United States. And so, with a great energy policy, then you also have a great environmental policy. Because you cannot continue on creating your energy from coal um, or from fossil fuel. Those are the big polluters. We have to get off that, we have to find ways through technology how to create clean uh, coal and how to uh, rely more on wind and more on solar and do kind of what we do in in, uh, California. Uh, the bottom line is that while we are not having a national policy on energy or on environmental issues, I think it's important that on a sub-national level that the states take on the responsibility and start creating this movement nationwide, and that's what we have done in California. We have taken on the leadership, we have started forming partnerships with other states, and with other provinces, north in Canada, and with states in Mexico, and with the uh, Chinese provinces, and so on and so and also with European nations, and that's the direction that we're gonna go. We're not gonna wait any longer for, for national governments to come up with, come to an agreement or to have for us to have a sound energy policy.
1: Are you applying any pressure, twisting any arms to try to get the US to, to move a little faster here or back Shh. home?
2: I think that, uh, like I said, the Obama administration wants to uh, move faster. I think that they're interested in in, in coming up with a good policy and with a good way of a good agreement internationally. But of course, one person alone or one uh, administration alone cannot do it. You need Congress to uh, pass those laws. So no matter what President Obama is trying to do here in uh, Copenhagen, he cannot make the ultimate promise. Or agreement because it's Congress to verify it and to do you know to sign off on it, and so I think that, uh, uh, but at least you know he's leading the way, and uh, so any help they need from us, we are more than happy to do that. But in the meantime, one should recognize that all great movements, and including the environmental movement, all great movements come from the grassroots level and do not come. From, the, from any state capital or from any federal government or anything like this, no matter what movement you're talking about. And so I think that we should rely more on the cities and on the uh, states, and on, on the subnational level, we should rely more on those, because they're the ones that really do uh, you know, the mitigation anyway. Uh, it's not going to be done in the capitals.
1: Wang Ming, uh, 20 years ago, you were a petroleum engineer, and speaking of movements, you went out into the streets during the democracy protests of of 1989. We've seen some of those protests here in, in Copenhagen, as well as the negotiations. So as a businessman and a former activist, what do you count as success here in Copenhagen?
3: Yeah, in, in my opinion, there are uh, three examples of success, successful promotion of renewable energy and uh, other energy-saving products. Uh, one is uh, just like uh, Germany, they promote uh, 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 the, the, the feeding law tariff. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second is just like uh, Arno said uh, about the uh, uh, subnational like uh, uh, California, which is also very successful. A lot of uh, big, big change, and a lot of examples, just like uh, high temperature thermal power plants in desert in California. And uh, the third example is grassroots uh, uh, green revolution in China. The government only laid the foundation or platform for grassroots or private sectors to, to promote uh, some kind of business like uh, solar water heaters all over China. Nowadays uh, our whole industry of the solar solar industry have promoted uh, uh, 150 million square meters of solar heating systems. That's uh, more than uh, 50 million families, let uh, me uh, see 200 million people use the solar water heaters. If USA uh, reached such, uh, the whole population of USA uh, have, have used the solar water heating system, every family, I think President Obama will gain uh, another four or five uh, Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> so uh, that's the grassroots. My opinion is that we should push Uh, This uh, kind of uh, revolution, all level, governmental, uh, sub-governmental, and uh, grassroots, and uh, all the sectors of the whole world, I mean capital, uh, industry, uh, public, and also government, local government, media, everybody should get involved in that. So that's uh, a kind of uh, fashion. Just like Arnold uh, lead the, the the fashion uh clothes the, the 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 hero of man, you lead uh the, the for maybe half a, a century of uh, the, the fashion of the whole world. So next next year and uh, in the future you will lead. All of us will lead the, the fashion of the whole world. Green's fashion, uh, energy savings fashion. So that's I think that's the reality.
1: How much of your company has benefited from from government subsidies? A lot of the debate in California and elsewhere is how much government should give money to companies or, or incentivize consumers to buy green products. How much of that has happened in your company? First,
3: uh, we benefited from uh, the open door policy. Just allow everybody to business to open their business. Uh, just uh, so solar is one of the. That's the benefit from our government. Then we were successful when we become successful in promotion, many many families and many many hotels uh, to buy that without subsidy. Then the local government gave us some support. Uh, for example, when we are successful, when we were successful in bidding for International Solar City Congress 2010, then government gave us some. Uh, uh, tax uh, payback or some financial support for uh, contract. But you started without government uh, handouts. Without. without. But the uh, central government and the local government did give some uh, support in R&D, in reformation, innovation, in that level. So So I think that's uh, the promotion of uh, commercialization from government is more important than the subsidized or intensive. Because without subsidies, just like uh, uh, Jimmy Carter time, uh, when energy crisis happened, then government gave some subsidies to the industry, to the customers. Then uh, when the, uh, the crisis passed, then the subsidies is gone, the, the whole industry, the whole business, whole business is over. So many, many American people recall the good old days of Jimmy, Jimmy Carter times. It's interesting that we have someone from a communist economy
1: who grew his company without any government subsidy, and American companies are looking for uh, subsidies to get going. We had a number, of, several hundred people submit questions for this via Twitter, and Ralph writes, How much money lies in green technology and solar energy? Governor?
2: Well, we have seen um, that. Uh when people have a fear that you have to choose between uh, the economy or uh, between the environment, uh, we have seen that you can do both. You can uh, protect the economy and also protect the environment at the same time. And uh, we are, for instance, uh, more than 60, well, 60% of the venture capital in the United States comes to California because we are basically catering to those businesses and we are also showing leadership. We have passed laws with AB 32, where we have made a commitment to roll back our greenhouse gases to the 1990 level, which is basically 25% reductions uh, with our green building initiatives, with our low carbon fuel standards, with our tailpipe emission standards, with us building the hydrogen highway, with us giving incentives for uh, companies that build electric cars like Tesla. Uh, you know, to go and uh, you know, we help companies financially. And so it has been a huge boom in that area, even though the economy is really down right now worldwide. But in that particular area, in the green technology, we see a huge boom, and increase in jobs. And also, like I said, in venture capital, we come to California. More than 40 percent of all the patents in wind and solar is from California. So we see great, great activities and really leading the rest of the nation. And, um, you know, we have great partnerships in solar, for instance, with China and of course, Wong is, uh, I I want to brag a little bit about him because he has been kind of like the solar king uh, of of China and he has done an extraordinary job. Uh, And uh, so this is why it kind of annoys me a little bit when uh, you come to this global climate summits, uh, as this one is here in Copenhagen, and then people say, well, China hasn't made a commitment or the United States hasn't made a commitment. Well, that's true. They maybe have not made a commitment on a national level uh, and still have some difficulties to have some things need to be ironed out. But in the meantime, I think that the people also should understand that that does not mean the United States is not moving forward. Because we on a sub-national level, we are doing great things. Uh, and also the same is in China. There's more solar being installed in China. There's more electric cars being built right now than ever before. There are research in a battery and all in every different level because I know the partnerships that we are forming and the kind of things that we are selling to China. So there's, there's many different levels, but on a sub-national level is great, great action and one should not discount that. And this is why I'm a big, big supporter of, of, of provinces in China and of states in the United States and in other places to come together and to have an international summit just like they have here of the national governments but on a sub-national level. And so we we push forward with the whole thing and we have seen that the, the national government, when the states are successful, states always act as a laboratory for the federal government. And so when they see something working on, on, the, on the state level, then they adopt it and they copy it. And so we have seen that uh... with uh, you know the efficiency uh... you know of of cars the laws that we have passed with the tailpipe emission standards and so the federal government has sta- adopted the same kind of laws mm-hmm. and we hopefully they will hopefully they will also adopt the reduction in greenhouse gases our ab-32 uh... which is a bill by friend powerfully uh... that has been very successful and we are now slowly implementing that in in california
1: you also this week announced something called the r-20 with uh... canada france uh, some, some other countries. Uh, Canada's been a country that's been more hesitant. They sub- export a lot of dirty tar sand oil to the United States. Uh, is part of your thinking there to, to sort of push the, the national government in Canada further along through the States?
2: Do inspire them, uh, that's the idea. But remember, France is a very unique uh, place because they get, you know, they, uh, most of the energy is from nuclear power. Mm-hmm. So there is really no greenhouse gases. I mean, uh, they are way ahead of us. When you look at the amount of uh, of greenhouse gases uh, they emit as a country, it's very low compared to other countries. Because of that, I think it's like 80 percent or so, if I'm not mistaken, is from nuclear power. And uh, so, you know, we uh, in the United States, and I in California, talk about the possibility also of looking at nuclear power because we should not exclude that at all when we talk, you know, about renewables and about getting off fossil fuel and uh, getting off the dirty coal and so on. One, and, and, and that's why on the end I always say, what will save us all is not all of those, all the agreements. What will save us really is, is technology. The agreements are great, to make agreements on a national level, uh, to make agreements on a sub-national level. But one should not forget about the scientists, one should not forget about the universities, the research that is done on that level to find technology because remember there's no one in the world that wouldn't rather buy a truck that is electric or a truck that is hydrogen than to buy a fossil fuel or some kind of a gasoline truck if the technology is available and if the price can be competitive, right now we still have a problem. Even though the technology is moving very quickly, mm-hmm. but still, when you buy a hybrid car, it costs you ten thousand dollars more. Mm-hmm. Still, when you buy an electric car, it costs you more. So technology costs you something. As soon as we get into the situation as we were, as we have been in in the last ten years with, with uh, telephones, with cell phones, where all of a sudden the prices come down and where everyone buys in, the third world countries. People that have no money uh, having cell phones and iPhones and all of those things, that's where the action is. And that's, I think, what we're trying to get at is that it becomes so readily available that the prices come down of electric cars and hydrogen cars and hybrid cars and all those alternative fuel cars.
1: Arnold Schwarzenegger is Governor of California. We're at Climate One in Copenhagen, and our other guest is Huang Ming, CEO of Pumin Solar. Uh, Mr. Huang, uh, you have a lot of 8,000 employees, I believe, a lot of engineers. Do you think the technology leadership is moving to China, away from the United States?
3: I think uh, in that case, we need cooperation. We just uh, we have strong point on one side. You have strong point on one other side. So this cooperation is very necessary. So I have two uh, proposals to Mr. Governor. First, when you talked about uh, the uh, provincial level summit, I'd like uh, to invite you to host I, I, my Solar Valley want to uh, host the, that kind of provincial level summit because we have the largest and the first international solar and renewable energy conference center which we have uh, more than f- uh, 500,000 uh, square meters of solar and energy saving buildings, hotels, conference centers, museums, uh, entertainment center, theme park, and so on. Uh, and R&D center, we have more than 2,000 R&D and engineering for solar thermal. So uh, if uh, this kind of provincial level summit is held, in China, in Solar Valley, uh, which is not uh, very far from Beijing, uh, two hours So, uh, Mr. Governor, do you agree with me? I need your support from that. For the, that second, I have a proposal. Uh, I want to set up my business in California, maybe some joint venture, or uh, I promise another commitment or promise within eight years, we can uh, promote 90% of the family and uh, uh, maybe uh, 70% hotels, hospitals, schools with solar heating system. Because in USA now solar thermal is much, much like behind. Solar uh, high temperature power plant, PV is okay. <coughs> So we will meet this weaker point. Uh, so we want to organize maybe some joint venture. If you are welcome.
2: Uh, first of all, you're absolutely correct. Partnerships is where the action is. We always love partnering with China. They have been terrific and they're so enthusiastic about renewable energy and like you said about solar. And uh, we in California, we are big believers in solar and uh, in geothermal. And, uh, for instance, we just we have energy companies like PG&E and Southern California Edison that have just made agreements with, uh, with uh, a majority of the warehouse owners in California. Mm-hmm. Because, as you know, we have a huge amount of warehouse space with a tremendous amount of space on top of rooftops mm-hmm. that are not being used to go and design agreements to put solar on top of those rooftops. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cost anything to the warehouse owners pg and Southern California Edison pays for that and they now get this on the grid right from there so that provides uh, right now the agreements that were signed is like for uh, uh, electricity equal to powering 300,000 homes and this will increase now so everyone is getting really creative I see more and more universities now having uh, solar on top of their um, parking lots, you know, that keeps the cars cool because there's solar on top, but also at the same time it creates uh, it energy. Most uh, Yeah, That's right, yeah. But uh,
3: how about solar, solar heating system? I have from... Well, uh, we
2: don't need as much heating in California, except maybe in the winter, we need more cooling. But so, uh,
3: so many s- uh, family swimming pool. Uh, now oh, yeah, no, no. In our house, we have that. You're absolutely correct for the jacuzzi
2: and for the swimming pool. You know, we, we have a solar. You're absolutely right. Now we're we getting somewhere. We, we, we have a solar for that, for the heating. You're absolutely correct.
0: <laughs>
1: Wouldn't be a program about California. We didn't get hot tubs in there somehow. So, um, another Twitter question uh, from a person uh, Adrian Moore on Twitter. Are hybrids uh, quick fix, which are cheap and easy? Or would uh, hydrogen be a better way to propel automobiles in the future? Governor?
2: Well, uh, I think that we should never pick winners. Um, I think that if it is uh, biofuel or if it is electric cars or if it is hybrid cars or if it is hydrogen cars, I think that the people eventually, according to how fast the technology develops and how efficient those cars are, they will pick the winner. And uh, we've seen now that people are very interested in electric cars, and that's why you see, you know, uh, Tesla, for instance, uh, being a a huge hit uh, out there. And other uh, car manufacturers, uh, uh, Fisco, for instance, has uh, just now uh, developed a car, extraordinary-looking sports car, four-door, and they're building that that, that car, they're going to build that car also in California. And there is also trucks being developed uh, and, and built, electric trucks that will haul uh, 60,000 pounds, for, especially for the ports. And because of the technology that has been developed in all those different areas, if, uh, if it is electric or if it is uh, hybrid uh, or hydrogen, we have seen a decrease uh, of uh, CO2 emissions in, uh, in the ports. In Los Angeles alone, they're around 70%. Uh, because that has really created a big problem uh, for the last few decades. But now we are seeing a huge, a fast decrease in that also, again, because of technology. But which one uh, will uh, ultimately win, I don't think that we can say that yet. And I'm not about to push one versus another.
1: But California has advocated hydrogen a little more aggressively. The U.S., kind of wanted to pull back on hydrogen. Chevron's pulled back on hydrogen, but California seemed to be a little more bullish on hydrogen than well, some other
2: people. Steve Chu, our, our Secretary of Energy, he's a very smart fellow and he's a great, great leader, but he happens not to believe in hydrogen. And that's the reason why. And I always have this argument with him because he's, by, by not supporting hydrogen, he's starting to pick winners. And I think that government should never do that. And um, I think that hydrogen is a great, great future. Uh, We have uh, been uh, kind of ahead of everyone else because we were the first state to build hydrogen fueling stations. Because too many, for too long, uh, manufacturers, car manufacturers, have been talking about why would we build a hydrogen fueled car or powered car when there are no hydrogen fueling stations. So they always, uh, you know, it was always exactly. and so when I came into office, I said, okay, then let's go and work together with uh, some of the oil companies and help th- have them help us build hydrogen fueling stations. And we as a state also put money in every year. And we now have uh, hydrogen fueling stations all over the state of California that if you have a map and you know where the fueling stations are, you will never run out of fuel. If We still need least double the amount that what we have now. So we're not there yet. But the bottom line is that you can now have hydrogen cars and we have a lot of hydrogen cars in California because of that. So there is a huge explosion in a a hydrogen car area because we have the fueling stations and we are very aggressively this next year continue building hydrogen fueling stations.
1: Arnold Schwarzenegger is Governor of California. We're at Climate One in Copenhagen. I'm Greg Dalton and we also have Huang Ming with us from means solar. We have about two minutes left, and we have a question from the audience about, the negotiations here have been very rough, very difficult. It's not clear how they will turn out, but what did you hope about a positive outcome here in Copenhagen,
3: Juan, I think the biggest outcome is the impact to the whole world, psychologically, fashionable, uh, and also the air, the culture. So that's very important. Everybody uh, pay attention to that. Sure. Everybody knows it's the future. So everybody wants to involve that. Not only these green people, but also the other, uh, the public, the, all of the countries. That's laid the foundation of the commercialization uh, of the subnational level uh, booming of the uh, industry, of uh, the, 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 the reformation, everything. That's very important. Uh, whether or not the, the result will come, it's not important, so important. So it's about culture and psychology as much
1: as the policies that might come out of this. Governor?
2: I think that uh, one should never discount the, the kind of great work that's going on internationally. Every country has some great, great leaders there that are doing extraordinary work. For instance, Wong in China, or Dr. Bachari, who is going to be your next uh, guest here who has uh, been talking about you know, replacing kerosene lamps and paraffin la- lanterns uh, to replace them with solar, for instance, for hundreds of millions of people. I mean, this is just a ex- spectacular kind of work uh, that uh, you know, one should acknowledge. So even though maybe India has not yet signed on to an international agreement, but there's great work already going on within India, and the same is in China. and the same. So the point I'm making is, is that The more often we get together in those kind of international meetings, the better it is. Because the more we learn. Every single time I go to one of those meetings, I learn from different countries of what they do. Uh, new ideas they have, you uh, sit there with the Brazilians and you talk about the rainforest and the complications and how to get rid of the problem of the deforestation, what kind of incentives they need, how do we help them and how do we partner? You learn from those things, so I think that those kind of gatherings are very important, even though maybe they don't end up always with the exact success that one set out to to, to, to accomplish. Um, I think the key thing is, is not only to rely on national governments, but also on subnational governments, and like I said, on the scientists, on the, on the university community, on the private sector, and, uh, and not to make it a political issue, because to me it makes no difference. I don't know what his political, uh, uh you know uh, philosophers i don't know what pujari's political philosophy but we all work together we all have the same interest we all want to march in the same direction which is to get rid of the problem of global warming and come up with ways to to, to fight that and overcome that and make this kind of be our big challenge for the future
1: all right we have to wrap it up there thank you for yes. coming to climate one in copenhagen thank you.
0: You're listening to a special broadcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club from the Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen, Denmark. We've just heard from California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and Himeen Solar founder and CEO Wang Ming. We'll now hear from Rajendra Pachari, chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and Kayo Koch vesser vice chair of Deutsche Bank. They are talking with Climate One founder Greg Dalton.
1: A lot of numbers out there floating around, different uh, percentage cuts in carbon, different targets. Uh, what do you think is the actual goal that we ought to be going toward, either in parts per million or percentages? What's, what's the target scientifically?
4: You know, the target has to be set by value judgments. We provide the underlying science. It is for the world to decide whether they want the Maldive Islands or parts of Bangladesh to be submerged by sea level rise, or they feel that as long as those places go doesn't matter. As long as we are safe, it's all right. By we, I mean countries that are essentially powerful and determined decisions at the international level. I think that's a value judgment. Now, I want to emphasize that even with a two degree increase in temperature, the impacts are certainly not going to be easy to handle. Just to give you one single number, with a two degree increase in temperature, sea level rise on account of thermal expansion alone, will be between 0.4 to 1.4 meters. Now, add to that the melting of the ice bodies across the globe, you might end up with sea level rise of one meter. Now, does the world world want that? Does the world accept it? That's not something that science will tell you. That's something which ethics our concern for future generations. And the fact that we have a responsibility on our shoulders should decide. Science can only assist you in giving you assessments of what would happen with different temperature increases and what kinds of impacts we're likely to face.
1: Uh, NASA's James Hansen is out there with others saying 350 parts per million. Do you support 350?
4: Well, I had to make a statement, which I think has been repeated in several places. I said that as chairman of the IPCC, I cannot say it should be 350 or 450. But as a human being, I certainly support 350. And I want to draw the distinction.
1: Dr. Rajendra Prachari is chairman of the intergovernmental panel on climate change. Um, Mr. Kochvasser, 350 deep cuts. How are we going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? Public, private. How the capital flow is going to. Well,
5: let me up. first say, and I totally agree with uh, Governor Schwarzenegger. Give us a carbon price, and the private sector will do the job. And the way Project Apollo drove IT revolution and global growth at a higher level for decades. The green economy and carbon prosperity will drive growth in the future. Coming out of this financial crisis, it's very important that we see who are the new drivers of growth. It will be the emerging market countries like India, Brazil and China will grow much faster than the developed world. But there's another huge emerging market, so to speak, and that's the green economy. Now, these incentive systems, these taxes, the combination of cap and trade and taxes, have to be transparent, they have to be long-term, and they have to be reliable, they have to give you certainty. We, as major carbon traders at Deutsche Bank, are already hampered by the fact that we don't know what the system will be after 2012. These are policy-driven markets. Get the policies right, have on declining scale things like feed-in tariffs, declining scale, rational, not waste money, the private sector will do the job. The second point is of course what we do with the developing countries. When you look at the negotiations this week, they are not going far enough towards what I would subscribe to, the 350 to 450 PPM. So you need a mechanism to get back to the table and scale up the ambition. In a review that happens earlier than anticipated, I think that's realistic for this week. Second, it's realistic to expect that developing countries submit their national a nationally appropriate mitigation action and low carbon growth plans to an international registry and MRV. That's reasonable. MRV being? um, Monitoring, reporting, and verification. And third, that comes to finance. There is not enough money on the table. Leaders have to take more money in order to finance the incremental cost to developing countries. you You're talking
1: political leaders and taxpayer money.
5: Well, yes, because for the developing countries, no, let me qualify, for the developing countries, a lot of stuff is actually on the left-hand side of the McKinsey cost curve. It pays for itself, uh, if energy efficiency in buildings, etc. But then there's a big area on forestry, red, and others where they need money. However, I would argue, and that is not sufficiently discussed here this week, there are market-based solutions also to that. Out of one billion public money, you can make five, six, seven billion in uh, private money that flows. There's a pipeline of projects in renewables, for example, in the developing world uh, waiting to be financed. Because of financial crisis and because the policy uncertainty prevails, they are not being (coughs) financed. We have been working with McKinsey, Deutsche Bank and others on a scheme that can easily be scaled up then, where you take a certain amount of public money, you take a first loss equity participation of public money to take to take the policy risk out of the equation and then big amounts of private money will flow, maybe to the tune of 1 billion public money, 3 to 4 billion equity and 5, 6, 7 billion debt financing. And the 65 to 70 billion we need annually between now and 2020 to finance incremental costs in the developing world can to a large extent also be financed that way. Carbon markets is the third element. We need to scale up and professionalize the existing carbon market CDM. Make it sector and programmatic based. Make it uh, with the marketing board and the regulator a much more professional outfit. We are waiting now just in the approval process, often by far too long when we originate projects in the developing world under the CDM system. With those measures coming back to my point, I think the private sector will do the job.
1: You place a lot of faith in the private sector at a time when we've just seen some very significant market failures. And some people are reluctant to say the market will solve all problems. Market do fail. Carbon markets could be the biggest commodity market ever in the world. A lot of people think they could be gamed. Uh, Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx, came to Commonwealth Club recently and said... Carbon markets can be gamed, lobbied, et cetera. So I just want to challenge you a little bit on your faith in markets that will just solve all the problem. And
5: That's why I said you need a tough regulator. We have learned a lot. That's a different conversation during the financial crisis, mm-hmm. what has failed here. I see no reason that you cannot regulate them in a professional way that meets high standards. And I think many countries are now moving in that direction. We just had a request from the People's Bank of China to come as Deutsche Bank and present to them while we would see a carbon market that should be developed in in China, for example. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. We have to make them sure that this is transparent, that this is reliable, this is credible, in order not to lack in Mm. the end the political support. But markets can do it.
4: No, I I agree entirely with that. I mean, the basic fact that... uh we took our eyes off the ball and we believe that markets without regulation can do what is expected of them was a piece of naïve policy making. And let's face it, I mean, people will take advantage of the situation, they will throw ethics to the wind, they will throw morality to the winds. And I think that's why you need governments, you need regulatory bodies to see that um, there is no deviation from intent or policy. And I agree entirely with Kaya that, you know, that's what we need to do with uh, the kind of money that's going to be spent in uh, solving some of these problems.
1: Does there need to be any supranational regulatory body? These carbon markets, if we're talking about a global carbon market uh, and it's regulated in each industry, who's overlooking sort of the, the, the cracks? There'll be arbitrage... Uh, have you given any consideration to any sort of over-international body that, that looks the, at the markets at The
5: vision should clearly be that we have a global carbon price and we have a global carbon market. But obviously it would be naive to believe that's for tomorrow, that's yeah. long term. The important thing is like in other parts of capital markets, finance, that we harmonize policies to an extent that this becomes possible in the long run. We will see, of course, regional cap-and-trade markets to start with. But again, we have to be very careful that there are not the wrong incentives then, for example, for border tariffs emerging, because there is not the same <coughs> philosophy driving these policies. And that's a big act of leadership.
1: Tariffs have, on trade, you mean? Is that what you mean? Yeah, tariffs on trade? I mean, trade? in the no.
5: US, that's a real risk that people might say, if others don't do the same things, we just slash a, a border tariff. I was just in Washington with the Bergston Institute. They're doing a lot of work for White House and others. Uh, on the link between climate and trade policy, mm-hmm. I think that's an area we have to sharply focus on to have the right answers.
1: So you favor not using trade as a tool or a weapon in, in putting a price on carbon. That trade ought to be put off the side.
5: Yeah, no, it's, it will be lead to a, a ripple effect to to consequences that are very dangerous for the world. I, I, I
4: think it will be very unhealthy for us to go in for something like that because, I mean. Um, that can be misused in a variety of ways. And sure. you certainly don't want to do that. And it will also raise suspicions which are not at all required to meet this problem on a global scale. Then how do
1: you enforce compliance? I mean, one of the problems with Kyoto was there wasn't a lot of stick to, to enforce compliance. If, if you don't have trade as a stick, then how are countries uh, going to be compelled to, to meet their target? Well,
5: well, there are some parallels in WTO. Mm-hmm. which works quite well. Uh, it's not optimal, but it works. But you're absolutely right to put that question. I think that's also my concern. How, in the end, countries don't get away not meeting these, uh, these commitment levels? But beyond name and shame and uh, other mechanisms, ideally, eventually, again, you would have a regulator and a global system that can uh, penalize as well uh, as a reward. But that's not realistic near-term.
4: And I think we have to learn from Kyoto. Kyoto was a step forward, but we know that it was an imperfect step. And therefore, this time around, we have to learn from all that we should have done with something like Kyoto, and we must do now. So um, I think uh, the time for us to look at all these aspects and to bring them into any kind of a new regime is, is now, and we should do that.
5: Could I agree with Governor Schwarzenegger also very much on the point he made on action at subnational level? was just with the governor of Sao Paulo state in Brazil. They are now going ahead with very progressive climate legislation, and Sao Paulo is, of course, the locomotive of Brazil, economically uh, speaking. You see that in many other parts of the world. California is an early example. M- networks of mayors that introduce standards and uh, the whole equation of how you get much more efficiency in buildings and so on, is a very powerful instrument for learning from best practice and linking up. And in the end, again, I mean, putting some pressure on those who are not doing it. Uh, So I think he, he made a very valid point. Let's not just wait for the national level treaties to be signed. By the way, on that one, I really hope the next two days you don't become bogged down in deciding endlessly on which track to follow, the Kyoto Protocol the other one. Let's put the legal character of the eventual agreement for a moment aside, agree on the three other points that I mentioned, and then return to the legalities of all that.
1: So agree on the substance and the process later? Precisely. Absolutely. I
4: think the substance is uh, absolutely crucial, and I really don't think we should get bogged down with the. Legality or the legal implications of what would happen. But may I also endorse what Governor Schwarzenegger said. I have now come around to the view and I firmly believe that the nation state by itself is not going to solve this problem. You certainly need grassroots movements and particularly in democracies, unless you have that, you won't have policies bubbling up to the top by which governments or leaders will look beyond the next election. I think they must realize that all this is critical for them to win the next election. That, you know, the voters are going to demand this. That local government is going to demand this. State leadership is going to demand this. And therefore, I think we really need to emphasize on the bottom of the pyramid and start building activities that essentially don't wait for leadership from the top. But that leadership from the top will follow from what happens at the grassroots level.
1: Rajendra Pachari is Chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We're at Climate One in Copenhagen. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Mr. Kofessor, Vice Chairman of Deutsche Bank, uh, do you agree with that bottom-up idea that we ought yes, to have sort of, be. rather than top-down?
5: Absolutely. It's not either-or, but uh, obviously bottom-up will be very powerful and is very much in line with the philosophy of the private sector, obviously, to work, uh, to work bottom-up. Let's start also private sector projects without waiting for government. Deutsche Bank recently together with Siemens, very large utilities in Germany, the solar producers, started a truly transformational project, long term, which is to bring a large part of the electricity needs of Europe from the Sahara, through so concentrating solar power. A purely private sector initiative. Obviously, we'll have to look at the regulatory environment, cross-border feed-in tariffs and all the rest. But by 2050, we won't want to be in a situation where private sector finance, basically, we bring much of Europe's power needs uh, from the Sahara. The, t- the technology exists in California, famous Junction, since the 80s. Unfortunately, later driven out by cheap Alaskan oil, which was absurd what happened there. Secondly, the finance will be a huge challenge. We are talking potentially 100 gigawatts, uh, 400 billion euros, uh, but that's doable in the end. We are talking next 40 years. But the geopolitics will be very interesting, because you need, of course, for these North African countries to consider this a development proposition, where they meet their own energy needs, where they export energy, and if it's such a development and climate proposition, it can be done. But again, my point is, it started by the private sector. So this bottom-up approach, both by subnational entities of governance, as well as by the private sector, is absolutely essential. Let's not wait.
1: Uh, and let's talk about you mentioned geopolitics let's talk about China we haven't really talked we talk about Europe and Africa here you spent a lot of time in China for the World Bank how do they come into this and what's what do you think that China needs to do to most play?
5: fundamentally China has understood and then they are very able to deliver that the climate issue is not only obviously a threat to the to the country and you only have to look at air pollution the rest you know that but more equally importantly It is an enormous opportunity to to leapfrog technology and to be a leader in technology and markets in the future. Electric cars, I believe 20 years from now, will probably come more from Shanghai than Stuttgart or Detroit. Uh, By leapfrogging and investing in these technologies, they can do it. China also has a command and control structure. I worked for many years for the World Bank in China, which enables, for example, mayors of Dalian or Tianjin, and I've seen their projects, to uh, introduce and enforce building standards, energy efficiency standards, in the vast stock of urban capital, mm-hmm. in, a more f- in a faster, more effective way than we, we can. So China got the message. It's a question like in the other areas of shifting demand from exports to domestic consumption, a question of time. It will take time, obviously, in such a big country. But they are well on their way, and they have a vision.
1: But they're still putting money into coal plants, internal combustion factories. They're still putting money in the dirty way. While have, doing...
5: At the moment, they have no option. Uh, but they are very interested in CCS, obviously. Carbon
1: capture and sequestration. We
5: need to have CCS commercially viable. The Chinese understand that too. By 2020, otherwise, all our numbers don't add up, I believe. Also for India and the US. Uh, But
4: China is is on its way. I don't know
5: actually what I think. Well, I think
4: in India we already have a solar energy mission which uh, envisages uh, 20,000 megawatts of solar capacity being established in the next 11 years. And uh, talking about the role of the private sector, my institute is involved in an initiative uh, to promote two uh, major solar thermal plants One in the state of Gujarat which is very forward-looking and the other in Rajasthan. Uh, And these are going to be 3,000 to 5,000 megawatts each. Now, uh, these things are happening without any global agreement because the people and the government of India are fully aware that we have to be part of the solution and that we have to promote a pattern of development which is sustainable and relying only on fossil fuels where the imports of these sources Uh, would increase beyond uh, acceptability in India uh, is not the solution, it's not the answer. We have to go to a much greater extent in developing renewable sources of energy, and that's what we're trying to do. So, you know, I think much is happening. Of course, it's not enough, but I believe, as uh, uh, Mr. Cocker has said, uh, I think uh, not only would electric cars be manufactured out of developing countries, but also renewable energy equipment and devices because I think the pendulum is shifting and swinging in the opposite direction. And this is bound to happen.
1: First time I rode an electric car actually was in India at your conference in February. Uh, And can't do that in America, but I I did it in India in a a real... Well, I have
4: one of those cars now. I drive it myself and it's a joy and a delight, I can tell you that. They're zippy, aren't they? They are. They're really nice, yeah. Uh, India is also known for using the per capita
1: metric as a way of measuring this. I'd like to get you to both comment on whether that is the right, a useful metric to use, or um, is that the way to look at it?
4: Well, you have to use all kinds of metrics, but I think it's important to look at the per capita uh, emissions uh, measure, because I'm afraid people in the developed world, and certainly in North America, don't know what it is to live in a poor society, where four hundred billion people in India don't have access to electricity. So I think they must realize that a lot of the space that is available as global commons has already been occupied by the the developed countries. And uh, therefore you need uh, this metric to be able to emphasize the differences that exist around the world. Of course, in the end, I think we all have to converge and come to something that's a common measure of emissions per capita But that realization has to set in in different parts of the world, particularly in those countries, which are huge energy guzzlers. And I think the time has come for people to understand that.
5: I think carbon equity in the end will be of course be very important. And if the developed world reduces by 2050 by 80 or 90 percent its carbon emissions, we will come to a certain level that we all have to adhere to. And according to my knowledge, it will be three tons, roughly, of per capita emissions that mankind can, uh, can afford. So a huge task to bring down the U.S. from 2022, Europe from 10 to 12. India, of course, is only at two, two or less three, than two, two mm-hmm. uh, less than two, uh, less than two, uh, China is, I think, at six now already. But the other point is, of course, it would not be in India's interest, I believe, or China's interest, to first walk up the Himalaya, so to speak, in getting up to 8, 10, 12, 15 tons, and then with the rest of us, tumble down the Himalaya again on the other side to get to the 3 tons mankind can afford. There are much smarter ways in India's best own interest for technology leadership and doing what uh, Sapachauri just explained. So carbon equity is important. Angela Merkel, our Chancellor in Germany, has actually with India and others raised this issue. Otherwise, we will not have peace on, in this world if you don't have equity.
1: Uh, do you think that the developed countries owe a debt for, for their contribution to the carbon that's already? Well, undoubtedly,
4: there? and I think more than that, time. you more than that you also need to see that there are countries in the world that are going to be the worst victims of climate change, uh, who need help for adaptation measures, and some of that will require fairly large investments. You'll need infrastructure that would help to insulate them from the impacts of climate change. So I think this, again, is an ethical question and it involves considerations of equity, not just across this generation, but future generations as well. And I think the developed world must chew on this uh, major challenge and realize that you know they have reached levels of prosperity by occupying uh, the global commons, where now they must yield space and provide support to those who are nowhere near that level of prosperity and will never attain that level of prosperity to at least be able to give them a decent standard of living. And climate change and its impacts are going to make it very difficult for them to be able to reach anything close to a decent standard of living. There's so much deprivation in the world and it's really those communities which are the most deprived that are going to be the worst victims of climate change. So I think there is an ethical dimension to this whole thing, which we cannot ignore.
1: And that ethical dimension means that, that there's, a, uh, there's a debt or a cost that comes with, with creating the problem. Absolutely. And we have to pay that.
4: Absolutely, right.
1: We haven't talked yet about multilateral institutions. You spent a long time at the, at the World Bank. Um, I think international aid um, has, some people would say, a mixed record. Um, so let's talk about international institutions and their role in addressing climate change, whether it's the World Bank or, or others. Do we need to create some new ones?
5: Well, let me first say that nobody's perfect. Many mistakes were made by the Bretton Woods institutions, but I, would, I strongly believe that the world would, not, would be a worse place okay. if these mm-hmm. many decades of work of the Bretton Woods had not happened. Just look, I was myself closely associated with that the leading role the World Bank played very much behind the scenes, as it should be, in the transformation of China when the World Bank was invited by Deng Xiaoping to come in 1980. It was, in the views of Chinese officials, one of the most productive partnerships and there are many, many other examples. And I'm very glad that the new American administration returns to multilateralism more than the predecessor Mm -hmm. government uh, Mm -hmm. believed in. Uh, I say that because it has implications also for the climate space. I think we will need an institution or an institutional setup that strikes the right balance between what I call legitimacy and efficiency. And what I mean by that is, let's be frank, I'm on the private sector. If I was, when I was in government, I was more circumspect in expressing that. But I think the UN system has failed us in many ways as a negotiating mechanism and to get results on the ground. That is not to deny that that they're wonderful people, that Mm -hmm. much has also been done by the UN, but it certainly doesn't meet the needs of of this world. And of course not the UN proper, just has to be blamed for it, but the international community and what it gave the UN by way of competence and, and powers. So that's the legitimacy side, if you want to have every country, one country, one voice. I believe what we created, and I was somewhat involved when I was Deputy Finance Minister, in the creation of the G20. I think the G20 succeeding the G7 or G8 is about the right compromise between legitimacy and efficiency. Because obviously with 20 finance ministers or heads of state now in the room, you can get more results and you can be more effective than if you have 190 or 192. And what does that mean for the climate uh, debate? I really hope that we don't make the mistake that we leave it all to very cumbersome UN-type international procedures. Obviously you need COP, you need what we have, but let's be creative below that level. And let me mention one example, coming back to how you uh, uh, ratchet up, how you Mm -hmm. leverage up public money six, seven times private money. If you now put this in the UN framework, and create the institutions, the legalities around that. We will probably spend two or three years doing nothing else but uh, setting the framework. I think we should start now. I mean, this should be up and running in six months to take a few billion, for example, of this Fast Start money and uh, for projects that are waiting out there. I Mm -hmm. explained that and could be done. So how you do it then? I mean, one extreme would be to say, let's take just a few like-minded governments Let's say, say the UK, Germany, I mean, you mentioned that for illustration, Singapore, Mexico, mm-hmm. who would sponsor it politically. Those countries, perhaps a few others, come up with the three billion or whatever to have a first big demonstration project or fund of or fund or funds for that purpose. Have a decision-making process as a result that does not have to involve the whole boards of multilateral institutions. And then bring investors around the table. Pension funds, ATP here in Denmark has already mm-hmm. put one billion mm-hmm. on the table. We could have um, investment banks and others uh, coming in, and move very quickly with these with these schemes because projects are out there. Now, of course, some will say that leaves the poorest countries out, and right. where is that equity? And that obviously has to be a concern. But the way the G20 increasingly has members speak for all members in their respective regions, India, South Asia, Brazil, Mexico for the Latin Americans, they have to be represented that way. That's, of course, also what happens in the UN Security Council in another, in another area. So where we drive that balance and how we go for speed now, because you cannot defy the laws of physics. I mean, if you don't get this done in the next years, We are lost. It's not a trade negotiation. Uh, This is against the law of physics and I'm very, very worried that we are already late. We lost 20 very precious years and I think history will tell us in the future. I hope it was not too late, but it was very, very late.
1: Uh, Thank you very much to Kyle Koch-Besser, Vice Chair of Deutsche Bank. Dr. Rajendra Prachari is Chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This has been Climate One in Copenhagen. We presented this program with Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Program, a nonprofit based in uh, in Vienna. And we're fortunate to have this space here at Hub Culture in Copenhagen. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. Thank Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a special broadcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, recorded earlier today at the Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen, Denmark. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum dedicated to airing diverse viewpoints on important topics. Climate One is a leadership dialogue on energy, economy, and environment. It is a special initiative of the Commonwealth Club of California. If you'd like to join the Commonwealth Club or purchase a CD of this program, call 1-800-933-7548 or visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Susie Racho. Please join us again for another outstanding program from the Commonwealth Club of California, produced in association with KQED Public Radio.